Hi, everyone. This is Lee. Every week's a little different on this show. And this week, while we're still talking about design, um, we're going to be talking about some pretty serious issues. And so I want to make sure that everyone who's listening is aware of that, uh, is in a good place when they're listening. And I encourage you to check our show notes prior to listening to the episode so you understand the context of what we're talking about and prepare yourselves a bit. Beyond that, uh, I welcome you to the conversation, and uh, I hope you find this conversation as powerful as it was for us. And I thank you for listening. Welcome to the Futures Archive, a show about human-centered design, where this season we'll take an object, look for the human at the center, and keep asking questions. I'm Lee Moreau. And I'm Sloan Leo. On each episode, we're going to start with an object with power. Today, that object is the bug zapper. We'll look at the history of that object from our perspective as designers who've done work in human-centered design. Not just how it looks and feels, and sounds and smells, but also the relationship between that object and the people it was designed for. And with other humans too. The Futures Archive is brought to you by the design team at Automatic. Later on, we'll hear from Vanessa Riley Thurman, a member of Automatic's designer experience team. Sloan Leo, it's wonderful to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Lee, it is a thrill to be here. So I'm wondering, um, uh, for this particular uh, episode, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your history as a child with bugs and insects. Were you the sort of like uh, like kid that like loved the creepy crawly stuff? So I have a relationship with a very specific beetle. Um, I don't like like spiders. I'm not in the mood for mosquitoes. But I went to Egyptian archaeology camp when I was like 11 at the New York State Museum in Albany, New York. And Egyptian archaeology camp, I went because I had become obsessed with scarabs, which are technically dung beetles. And they felt kind of magical with their iridescent wings and the shape of the body, which I will tell you, the shape of a scarab beetle is actually the most recently discovered shape in science um, or math, wherever shapes come from. It's called a scutoid, S-C-U-T-O-I-D. And that only happened last year. So I think that if scarabs are an insect, then I'm down for insects. So like you're in some sense, you're down with it, but you've got a very kind of narrow band that you're excited about. I personally was like not really into bugs at all. They were not my thing. They pretty much just made me feel uncomfortable and they still do. And I grew up in like a rural part of Maine. So there were plenty of bugs around all the time. And the mosquitoes were legendary, as you can imagine. I can only imagine. But it wasn't my wasn't my thing. So I was definitely not the kid on the playground that was like all excited about the bugs. I get you in that like I, they freak me out. But I live in a ground floor garden apartment right now. We, I do have cockroaches. And I have decided to just call them beetles. Like they're just big beetles. Because otherwise... Just if we're going to enter the creepy crawly, they freaked me out because the first day I was there, I was getting ready for a Zoom call in the mirror, putting my shirt on. And all of a sudden, I feel something crawling inside my shirt. And it literally crawled out from behind my neck on top of my head. And I just about lost my brain. And I was like, but it's just a beetle. I am bigger. I will win. This is my apartment. And it began the saga we are now in, which is slown against the very large beetles in the ground floor apartment. We're going to talk a lot more about topics like that in today's episode on the bug zapper. I think part of the track that we're on together, this sort of journey in this season is about convenience, right? And I think part of the convenience is 
in life is just staying away from some of that icky, gross stuff that we'd just rather not come into contact with. That is a that is a mark in some sense of convenience. Like my life is more convenient because I just don't have to deal with that. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that the bug zapper, there is this like, I don't have to deal with it. And I think a lot about, as we all know, like who has the authority or power to do that? And also like, what are the consequences of avoiding discomfort? That's, I mean, I think that's going to come up over and over. Um, who who has to manage discomfort? Who has to deal with it? Um, who can just uh, assign that to someone else or take their mind off of it completely? Yeah. And like, you know, discomfort and irritation are not unrelated. And I do think about that idea of like, how does a pearl happen, right? It's like the irritation of the sand inside the oyster, whatever it is. So I, I think there's value in being uncomfortable. And so as we're meandering today, it's like, is there value in being uncomfortable because of a bug? Maybe, maybe we land there. We'll find out. All right. So let's hear a little bit more about the bug zapper. We'll talk to our, uh, some actually not so regular guests and experts, because this is a topic we really haven't broached yet or even come close to. Uh, And so far, this is what we've heard. The word bug means a disturbance. It means a ghost, uh, this bad negative thing. David McNeil is the author of Bugged, the insects who ruled the world and the people obsessed with them. What you have is like centuries of people being devastated by insects. Uh, Fleas on rats during the Black Plague, like we didn't know that at the time. Um, But, you know, we found that out later on. And then it wasn't really until, you know, the 1600s that we actually started caring so much. I mean, we had some of the first exterminators ever that were offering their services. So 1690, there's this like sign going around in London and it says, may the destroyers of peace be destroyed by us. (laughs) That's dark. It's also just so dramatic. But it's, it's such a, it's such a kind of dark vision about what human power is, right? It's like, we're just going to take care of that and be done with this. It's an authoritative kind of tone. Absolutely. Oh, completely. But also, That's not an uncommon reaction, particularly for a certain set of people in our population, to have this kind of like insanely rage-filled expression um, and like embodiment of like that makes kind of strikes terror in the hearts of people or mosquitoes. So, you know, I think when we were talking about the blender last time, we were talking about convenience in the sense that when you you make something more convenient. Um, it actually does in some ways inconvenience either other people or it takes time or it kind of complicates life in a way that you didn't quite understand. With the bug zapper, I think we're going to enter a domain that's similar, which is that there are unintended consequences of something as seemingly simple as a bug zapper. Mm -hmm. Completely. I mean, I think about like convenience really is about the performance of relieving ourselves of labor like hitting something with a fly swatter, right? Like requires some sort of fine motor skills, some sort of like ability to focus on a very small point and like get it and move swiftly, but also then to like deal with the remains where the bug zapper is kind of like no must, no fuss. This is the idea again, this kind of performance of like, I have no labor, I live a life of leisure, I own a bug zapper and a blender. I think one of the things that's different about this is that, you know, the everything we were talking about with the blender had this sort of domestic landscape, if we, and I think we problematized that phrase in the last time we spoke. Um, this, but the sort of in your home domestic space environment that we're talking about here, we're actually talking about the outside, and and it's sort of 
humankind's attempt to conquer not just the interior space of the home, but also everything else that's out there. Yeah, we moved on to the outdoors and we were deciding this is also our house. And I, you know, I'd be remiss to be like, oh, well, this is just about like, I don't like mosquitoes. But mosquito-borne diseases kill lots of people all over the world. Like malaria is a major issue. And if they were, if people who are in places where there's a high amount of malaria were like, I want a bug zapper. I'm not going to be like, well, controlling nature, are we? I'm going to be like, okay, I don't want you want to get malaria. <laughs> No, I think that's a really good point. Like there are some significant issues that come from having insects in our lives. So to hear more about the history of the bug zapper, we're going to hear a little bit more from David McNeil, who's going to take us from the 1600s a little bit closer to today. In 1875, a Plattsmouth, Nebraska telegrapher messaged nearby towns to verify and gauge a dark cloud 1,800 miles long and 110 miles wide composed of 10 billion locusts. To this day, it remains the largest locust swarm on record. The pest, known as the Rocky Mountain locust, was widespread in the Midwest. It caused $200 million in crop damage and was rumored to derail locomotive wheels as well as Western expansion plans. And so billions of locusts, and within 30 years after like people killing these insects, collecting bushels, getting paid for you know, being bounty hunters, we made this locust extinct within 30 years. That's intense. I mean, in 30 years, we eradicated a species. I mean, the, the power that we have. I mean, the subtext in this whole, this whole series, this whole season is power. Yeah, and we're, we're definitely communal, I think, by nature, uh, no pun intended. But we, we are wildly reckless about the ecosystem that actually sustains us. It's, it's kind of shocking, right? Like, we're basically the frog in the pot who's decided to turn on the water. Right. And we're like, cool, it's a sauna. And like, but we're not going to get out. <laughs> like, that's it. That's part of this notion of convenience, right? It's like we want the pond to be just a little bit warmer. Wouldn't it be more comfortable if the pond was just a tiny bit warmer? Um, but this is some of this kind of notion of power. Is This is our thirst for convenience um, is to bend the world around us to our will. And we are powerful, but I don't know that our power is being used for good and not evil sometimes. In this story about the bug zapper, we talked to many experts. And in talking to David McNeil, we started to understand that, you know, this is a great expression of human ingenuity, which is to create a device that will help to solve a problem. Like the fundamental problem solving, gee whiz, we did it. Um, and the first bug zapper was patented in 1934. Um, and over time, there have been some improvements, but really it's effectively the same thing, which is you have this sort of like glowing thing at the middle and all these bugs are like oh i love glowing things and they all kind of fly in rush to the object and then they get they hit this like electrified mesh and just zap and die and you know the sound right that yes it's like the mosquito sound but electrified it's like taking them from acoustic into like an amplified sound it's it's terrible so I remember when I was a kid, there was a place where I'd go to a camp and there were many camps with bug zappers. And I, it's the, really the only place that I remember them being. And the, the sound triggers very clear memories for me, both of like the blue light and the, the flash that would happen. But also like I would, you'd walk by in the morning and you'd see all the dead bugs near the bug zappers. There's evidence, right, of this process. There's evidence, and again, there's just this reminder that there's someone there was harm happened here, you know? So, you know, this is a podcast about human-centered design. And so, 
you could ar the argument could be made that this is a simple design problem solved beautifully by the power and the and the intelligence of human centered design. What would you say to that? Well, Lee, you know how I feel about HCD. We have to evolve beyond single metrics and like vanity solutions, things that look good, feel good. And, you know, like we interrupt systems in human centered design, thinking us as designers know best, where we don't actually know the full narrative, the value set, the way someone's life is working. I'm not saying that there is like a desire to have a lot of mosquitoes, like I wear DEET in the backyard, or I could be at least, but like there is a just a, a, a superhumanness where it's like, but I can control my ecosystem. But that also doesn't feel true for every culture and every era within the human identity. Um, there's those bumper stickers that say coexist, kind of like the hippie vibes. Yes. And I think it's true. Like human-centered design actually is about solving for a problem. Whereas, as I would say, community design is about solving for the problem. How do we better coexist together? A word without insects is a word without humanity. That's what it looks like. Dr. Giuliano Morimoto is an entomologist and lecturer at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. So if we want to exterminate insects, we are by default exterminating ourselves. Dr. Morimoto is part of a research team that's working to educate the public about the interconnectivity between insect ecosystems and their services to human life and the kind of interrelationship between, well, our world and their world, or the fact that we're in the same world. Insects are so fundamental to all ecosystems that it's difficult to imagine life as we know in a world without insects. You know, we kind of take for granted the things that we actually get from bugs. We think of bugs as sort of a pest, but there are some um, really important things that we depend on that we get from insects, like honey and pollination, which I think without which we'd be in real trouble. Um, there's silk, there's wax, and you know this, this is a really dominant um, food stuff across in many, many cultures around the world. So this is not something that we can just abandon. We really do depend on insects. And, and also I want to push us to widen that frame even a little morely to say that there's a deservedness for living that is also extended to insects, even if we cannot extract value from their death or their life. Right. Like there's something about coexistence to me in both my spiritual practice and my kind of human living being practice where it's like there's value in them, but there's also just like the deservedness of life. And it's not an us and them sort of proposition. No, we're here together on a rock floating in space. And to be clear, what I can tell right now, Lee, this is the best rock. Everything else looks very hot, very cold, very far away, very, very dire out there on Mars. So I'm like, can we stay here? With insects, there's also a dimension that's like beyond, uh, as you said, utility or the fact that we have to live together. They also inspire us to thinking about the world in new ways. Totally. It's actually one of my favorite words, of which there is a list of favorite words, of course, Lee. Uh, but the one I'm thinking about today is biomimicry or biomimetic. And the idea of taking like silk and what do we know about silk to create stronger buildings? What do we know about from underwater sea creatures that glow? What does that teach us about illumination? Like, I feel like biomimicry invites us as human beings to say, 
in the world that is outside my physical body and the world that is not the built environment, not the constructed environment, where is there a lesson from nature? Where is there a sacred truth? And I think that there's, there is a shift towards that in design, right? Like we're not talking about design as if designers are just like, burn more gold. Like, and those designers are pretty quiet or not anywhere near me. Thank the goodness. Yeah. But there is this like shift within design where people are talking about, you know, the words are like sustainability and equity, but what they're talking about is trying to get more harmonized, having a better and more integrated connection with like a full world where there's less separation, less silos of ideas, less silos of practice. And I see that a lot in like the design of green spaces. I worked for the Trust for Public Land. And a big part of what they did was designing with community, with the physical environment to create playgrounds that could manage, uh, that could act as green infrastructure, right? So I think some of this is about as I think about a lot in community design, is about being in right, and I put that in air quotes, but in right or just relationship with each other and the universe around us. So you're talking, and I love this, you're talking about harmony. But if we go back to the bug zapper, we basically have identified this killing machine that we all have to live with, or we all live with. Like There's some kind of comfort level with this notion that we live with this. Um, talk about the rest of your work at Flock Studios and how that kind of almost absurdity, we need to like kind of rethink the framing for the way that we confront something almost as absurd as that. Yeah, I mean, I've been talking to some folks at the new school as we're thinking about how do we help design students and design professionals to navigate the both grief of change and the discomfort or distress change causes. Um, or that um, something that kind of ruffles our feathers, creates an irritation, makes us unsettled, right? So yes, the bug zapper is a very kind of concrete, poignant example of like, this thing caused an irritation. I don't like it. I invented a thing. It's gone. And designers, we do design out the discomfort for ourselves and for other people. Half the times we're saying problem solving, what we're saying is make yourself more comfortable, make the people around you more comfortable. And what we say at Flux and the way we think about it is like the discomfort that you experience, we don't just need to move that away so that somebody else is uncomfortable. We need to actually grapple with and hold some space for like life sometimes involves discomfort. And it is actually somewhat immature, I would say that we can just absolve ourselves of any discomfort. It means we don't have discipline. It means we don't have structure. And it means we actually can't be in community together, right? Like there are neighbors in your neighborhood, which is the first community people think about is like, where do I live or where do I work that are annoying, like a mosquito, but you don't just like tell them they have to move, smoke their apartment out. Right. And when that happens, we use much bigger, darker words, which we won't go into here, but like in general community design and the way we work at Flax studio is like, it is not even a design constraint. It is a fact. There will be discomfort. And that is not something we have to get away from. The Futures Archive is brought to you by the design team at Automatic, which is building a new web and a new workplace all around the world. My name is Vanessa Riley Thurman. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I work on the designer experience team at Automatic. Vanessa draws on her own personal experiences in her role supporting designers at Automatic. I think my background as a designer is so critical to my ability to do the work that I do now. So my job, practically speaking, means that I am looking at the critical moments in designers' careers and trying to ensure that we're delivering what they need at those points. 
When I was a designer, there were not a lot of people like me helping me to um, advance throughout my career. I had to advocate for myself a lot, possibly too much, but there were a few people who really made a difference and who believed in me. And so as part of my work at Automatic and as part of my career in general, I'm trying to increase the diversity of uh, design and to make sure that all types of people are represented. I think in design in particular, that's a really strategic advantage that a company can have, uh, an incredible creative advantage when you have all of those different perspectives. So that passion for that perspective is something that I definitely bring to Automatic into my work. Designing a better web. Join us at automatic.com slash design. That's auto, M-A-T-T-I-C dot com slash design. So it's one thing to talk about at a population scale to say like, okay, there are people somewhere else, either on our planet or in our country or something that need to be um, maybe less comfortable or maybe be inconvenienced, right? But when we apply that to ourselves, um, we start to take on those personal implications and sit with it. That's a different dimension and it's often much harder to broach. So those personal implications, those come through in the bug zapper in a really kind of scary way. We're going to hear a little bit more about some of those personal implications and the narrative that that starts to lead us into. I've also uh, conducted research examining uh, killing behavior in a a, a sort of novel bug paradigm I developed with a colleague of mine, Andy Martins. Speed Kozlov is an associate professor of psychology at California State University in Fresno. Together we developed this uh, simulated killing experience where participants would come into the lab and uh, through this procedure, be asked to take little pill bugs and pour them into out of a little tiny plastic cup uh, into a funnel that would then go seemingly down into a coffee grinder. It seemed like a bug extermination machine. And participants believed they would actually be shoveling bugs into this killing machine and then depressing a button uh, for three seconds to exterminate them. What we found is that we can get some interesting dynamic emotion uh, and behavior uh, from, from folks by having them go through a killing experience. A bug zapper effectively is something that exterminates insects. That is the point. In the work that Speed Kozlov was doing, um, and he's published a lot on this particular topic, um, and one of his his publications was called uh, Killing Begets Killing, Evidence from a Bug-Killing Paradigm that Initial Killing Fuels Subsequent Killing. And just, I think, in the title, he intended to put the word killing five times as a way to you know, really hit people in the, over the head with this. But what he found was that basically that humans, us, who were more comfortable with killing insects at greater numbers became over time much more comfortable with the idea. And there's a sort of snowball effect that would happen where at first there was a little, some level of discomfort, but once you got more familiar, more comfortable with it, it was okay, a little bit more okay. And then suddenly it got to a place where it was sort of normalized. So we're gonna hear a little bit more from Spee again, but sort of like hold that image in your head while he tells the rest of the story. We see that killing is a potentially problematic behavior. It can elicit dissociative response and you can have a negative emotional or psychological uh, response to it. And that then in turn we theorize kind of motivates efforts to restore one's mood. And one of the unfortunate processes by which that can happen is by committing oneself more fervently to the the process of killing, the act of killing. 
So then we get to this place, which is even darker, which is not so much that you're more comfortable killing. It's the fact that you almost embrace the idea, right? That the killing of the insects becomes something that you see in a more positive light. And therefore, you get a sort of um, beneficial response to uh, emotionally. While this is really dark in some respects, I think this is a space that we should be talking about. You were talking about like the irritation factor, right? And I, I think that we're very much in that space now. There's, there's a, a, a weightiness or a heaviness associated with death, particularly in American culture where we lack a lot of shared rituals for hard transitions and difficult emotions that I think even just taking a moment here to acknowledge that our lives as people are filled with things that are very intense and could be described as dark. And also those things do have meaning, beauty, challenge, like the texture of our lives includes that. And I think that to not have it would feel, like we said earlier, a bit kind of inhuman. There's a lot of work around trauma and healing that I thought a lot about as we prepared for today's conversation. There's a woman named Marsha Linehan um, who created this framework, Dialectical Behavior Therapy, DBT. And it's from the 1980s. But it was designed to help with emotional regulation for people who struggle with that, which is most of us. But what it does is it tries to help people create distance between an emotionally catalyzing event, like I just got bit by a mosquito, I just got yelled at at work, um, I just had this weird killing experience in this uh, science room, and to say, let me create space between my emotional experience and my emotional response. And I think that that's when I think about maturity, um, it is that ability to say, like, let me sit with this for a moment calm down my kind of like lizard brain and then make a decision that gives me a sense of like greater integrity. And so that gets, when that gets interrupted, that's what trauma is, right? It's that kind of like, I have these deep internal responses that are embodied and not rational in the kind of conscious mind that make me go like, kill it. Like just like quick action, just do it. And that that pause as designers and as people gives us the ability to maybe see a different outcome that's less violent and more kind, maybe more caring, or just less bad. The pause that you're referring to, I'm thinking about in a very practical terms, in a scope of work of a design project, the pause isn't really built in. Um, we have to make space for that ourselves as design practitioners um, to ensure that we're making good decisions. Because you know the way that we write design briefs, it doesn't say like, oh, after you actually identify the problem, pause and sit with that for a while before you actually act. I mean, I'd like to think that that's built into the practice, but quite often it feels like it's completely ignored. It's built into our practice at Flux, but it is definitely not common. We do it on a Zoom where we'll say before we go to breakouts, we're going to each take a sip of water. And we also do it in projects where, you know, for example, today we had a client who's dealing with some heavy stuff and we said to them, like, maybe we don't have that meeting today. We take a pause. Among your clients uh, and collaborators, I'm wondering if the notion of taking a pause is deemed as uh, a convenience or inconvenient. Because I would say, like, I can imagine many client projects I've worked on where you'd be like, wait, you want to take three, four weeks to just like sit with this? We don't have time for that. Oh, totally. I mean, like, we really take the time to articulate the perception of cost and then to look at the perception of cost from the people who are feeling harmed and then to say they need more time. And if you as a leader can't step up and say, like, my team has pain right now, 
we got to take a minute. Like, where is your humanity gone? So I want to go back and try to map this notion onto the bug zapper itself. So we're going to kind of like do a little, if we can, a little bit of a design exercise in real time. Let's. I love it. Let's hear a little bit more from Spee explaining his process and some of the learnings. When you do something over and over again, or something becomes kind of the background noise of your life and is normalized and such like that, it maybe makes it harder to, to see it for what it is and to see it for what how it's affecting you. So for a bug zapper is a really great example of this because the more that we have death and destruction as a sort of background noise to our everyday life, the more we perhaps get habituated to that as the, the sort of hum or zap sound that we're constantly encountering, um, perhaps the, the more um, almost depleted we are when it comes to actually having to devote our attentional resources to seeing death for what it is. I think it goes back to Lee, to this idea that like you adjust to things even when they are unjust or problematic. This notion of normalization, right? Totally. If we start off with the principle that uh, we would like to have less killing in the world, then we can look at this research we've done and say, hmm, well, now we're starting to maybe get a, a part of the picture as to why killing can occur and can get amplified. So maybe the more we learn about that, the more we, we, we spread the word, the more we encourage people to, to recognize that, that killing is not just a, a robotic action. It's also the, a motivated action. We would prefer as a species to survive. And if we're going to do that, perhaps we need to become a little bit more aware of just how unaware we are of the things that drive uh, our uh, unfortunate actions. And for me, this takeaway is super important in terms of design. We need to become aware of just how unaware we are and really appreciate that and kind of sit with it. So take the pause that you were describing earlier. Yeah, I mean, the pause is partly to dial down our parasympathetic nervous system when we are in times that feel highly stimulating or overwhelming. And it's partly based on kind of like meditative practice to me, but it's also just like literally we are overstimulated people, right? Everything's loud. Everything's aggressive. Everything feels very hard. And I don't know, during a global pandemic, like there is a, a hard scratchiness to everything that makes our physical body respond like a, oh, I'm not on the defense. I'm going to be safe. That kind of instinct to fight, fight, whatever. And the pause is really designed in our practice and designed into our practice to help people take a breath to slow down their parasympathetic nervous system so that they can say, okay, I actually need to think about this or that reaction was rooted in a fear. So the pause is a way of also just bringing ourselves to the present where we actually have a lot more control and agency. So we're pretty deep into this conversation now, Sloan Leo, and I'm going to make a confession. Do it which is that I'm kind of uncomfortable with this notion of pause. And I say that because as somebody who is trained as an architect and a designer, like I'm all about the grind, right? In architecture, you're trained to work 20 hours a day. That's like baseline, right? If you can do 22, 24, wonderful. You know, and this is part of the way, it's part of the upbringing, it's part of the culture. And the, in this this grind and we call it a grind, which probably should have told me something long ago about what that's really all about. But the relationship between that grind, which is so foundational for most designers, and this notion of pause, this is a this is a culture shift. I don't even know how to describe it. Yeah, I mean, 
racialized capitalism puts a high value on the performance and the commitment to work. You know, we talk about this idea of like a Protestant work ethic. We have tied capitalism and again, racialized capitalism, which is the system we live under, to our spiritual values in America and beyond, where it's like, I am a better person because I'm working so hard. I worked for a design firm that will go unnamed right now. And I was there for just three months because I was like, I'm not doing this. And they would say things to me like, well, if you have a dinner at six o'clock, it's not on your calendar, then it's work hours. So they literally wanted me to decide anything I was doing, any time in my life, weekends, early mornings, evenings, was called golden time. And if it wasn't marked, that was fair game for meetings. I would be working 12, 14 hour days as you do in a lot of these design studios, giving up your life. And they'd be like, oh, well, there's a meditation room. There's a lunch room. Everything you could need is here, right? Like everything was very convenient. But the consequence was that my entire life became a commitment to a capitalist productivity. And I have also worked through that too, Lee. Like it's a thing that's in my business that's new as a value that I decided with the studio is like, we need time not just to rest, but just to be, just to see what's going to happen. So whether you start with just like an hour of pause in your practice, maybe taking 10 minutes before you hit the button on the bug zapper, like taking a moment to think about it, to feel it out is as important. It's all about slowing the F down and saying, are these decisions the ones that are giving me the integrity I want? Am I a killer? Am I a like work obsessed wild man? Or am I a person? Am I Lee with a family and a desire to see change in the world, but also a desire to like maybe get better at napping? I don't know. So the pause that we're talking about goes beyond the bug zapper. And not too shockingly, this notion of designed violence is which is fundamental to the inception of the bug zapper and the way that we use it is also not limited to the bug zapper. There's nothing as evergreen, tragically evergreen, as violence. And there's nothing as powerful as design to understand the many facets and foibles of human nature. Paola Antonelli is a senior curator in the Department of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Modern Art, as well as MoMA's founding director of research and development. She co-curated an exhibit about design and violence. Um, We asked her about human-centered design and its relationship to this notion of design and violence. The moment you say human-centered, you talk about violence. It is immediately a center of egotism and entitlement that is wrong because, you know, we talk about implicit bias just by thinking that you are the center of the universe. Your bias is that the universe is for you. It's not. And I think that's also one of the hardest, hardest decolonizations to actuate. Of course, in a podcast on human-centered design or about human-centered design, this is tremendously provocative. You know, I do think she's right. There is a need for humans to exert their authority, um, but there's also a need for us to exert our love. And so I think even in my comments today, the thing that I hope we hold space for is that this is all practice because it's not going to be resolved and it shouldn't be because that would create some sort of stagnancy and life is actually about holding space for dynamism and that change and cycles. 
I think that focusing on human-centered design rather than community or biomimetic accommodating design, whatever you want to call it, means that we're not taking the full set of values and needs and harms and hopes and requirements for an effective global society and ecology into account. So I agree that the more we focus just on us as individuals and our personal or kind of tribal satisfaction in the sense of like small groups of people, we really miss out on the much fuller picture that makes our lives, I think, our lives. Well, you'll be happy to hear that there are some people who are thinking about these issues around the insect world and its relationship to humans in a different way than we've heard up until now. So I developed out of this research a art practice, social practice, performance art project called Feminist Pest Control. And out of it, I developed a manifesto coined Femifesto because, you know, feminism. And the main definition of pest animals are that pests are any human or non-human animal considered out of place or at the margins of normativity and cuteness. Lindsay Garcia is an assistant dean at the college at Brown University. She's an environmental humanities scholar and also a performance artist. There's a long history to this, the associations around insects that she's trying to problematize and, and probe on. There have been many different ways in which othered humans or humans who might have marginalized identities have been compared to pest animals. And so one of the ways that I think about infestation or pestness is that there are material, meaning like physically living in infestation, effects that are disproportionate based on identity. There's also metaphorical and rhetorical ways that humans who inhabit marginalized identities are compared to pest animals. Because if if we're thinking about how easy it is to kill a fly or a louse or a rat, if we are talking about a group of people in that way, then ultimately we are saying they are killable. They are disposable because they are the equivalent of this. And so by broadening, right, this notion about what is a, a pest, this notion of pestness, what is an insect, by broadening that to include the full spectrum of all life, you start to think about things in a different way. And it very much echoes what you were saying earlier about this sort of uh, living harmoniously. Yeah. I mean, Lindsay's reflections on the way in which marginalized identities are often seen as unnecessary or as other or as annoying, bothersome, is really possible because of who creates our like the majority of our mainstream narratives and so for me it feels like deep i have a deeply personal relationship with i don't know Lindsay's work but in hearing more about it today it gives me chills um you know we're living at a time where the eradication the disruption of the lives of marginalized people be they People with uteruses, uh, people who are poor, people who are living on some sort of contested land um, or stolen land. There is a very realness and a rawness to this truth in here. And I think part of me, like we talked about earlier, wants to be like, moving on, back to the bug zapper. (laughs) But (laughs) the other part of me is that like what it brings up for me is both 
rage, shame in an odd way, and grief. Because these are not like, these are not words. These are actions that are taking against humans and people who look, feel like, sound like me and people who are similar in their social position. And I do think that the more we can be in a human relationship, which again, was actually part of the impetus for human-centered design was to like find our way back to people. So while I can critique it, I think it's time to critique and move forward to community design, but that the direction it was moving in is the right idea. Because there's an ease of violence that comes when you don't see respect and can denounce someone else's literal humanity. And so I think that designing in community helps us to say, oh, you also have a mom. You also have a fear of not being enough. You also want to do a really good job here, you know? And that ability to see each other and to be in dialogue about the things that make us feel vulnerable or unstable is really important. Because my question is for people who look at people like me, who look at Black folks, at trans youth right now, and see them as disposable, as in, I can create a policy that takes away your quality of life and literally is designed to harm you. Those folks are the folks that really need prayer and need some sort of space for joy to re-enter their lives because the moral mark on them is very dark, you know? And I think we've been circling that for this whole conversation is like, what kind of people or circumstance create these moments of killing of a person, an idea of an insect? Who is it to take up space in the world that way to say, I am so important? It seems like that person is deeply flawed and a bit broken. Who gets to judge uh, what population can be zapped? Yeah. Who decides if I'm deserving? And that is, I think, one of the most important questions we can be asking ourselves, Lee. The world around us is is dark right now. And a lot of that is because people have gone too far in having too much control. If as an advocate or as an activist, I want to become more like a pest, how can I use that thinking in order to make larger, more gradual change? There's a proverb that I really like, which is, if you think you're too small, imagine sleeping with a mosquito, how disruptive and annoying and possibly harmful it can be. Like if you think of yourself as a mosquito, you can go pester other people into more socially equal spaces rather than continuing to live in these white supremacist universes that we currently live in. It's helpful to hear this idea of like disruption in a way that isn't about like making another app for your iPhone but actually about disrupting systems of inequity. But you need to pester with like a heart on fire for justice, not just a heart for being disruptive. I think that there's definitely, even in the language that Lindsay uses, like if as an advocate or as an activist, right? Like I have identity and have identified with both of those things, but in the way this is framed right now, I identify as like someone who's sad that my humanity is so easy to ignore. Um, and again, particularly right now with the attack on trans folks, 
on Black folks and on people who have uteruses, which I fit all of those categories, and I'm also neurodivergent, like the policy and political ecosystem of the U.S. and the globe is literally unsafe and violent towards me on a regular basis. So I live within a toxic, violent system. And so when I read things like as an advocate or as an activist, it's like, that's a good place to start. But there are those of us who are taking those identities on because we don't have a choice because we have to survive under these conditions. And I think the more designers and design types and people who have power, which I think we all have some, some type of power, can hold on to like disrupting requires choosing to put yourself in an uncomfortable position so that you're not just a bystander, but you're actually shaking it up. We need that, right? We need that rage to go into that kind of like shake it up, change it, ask what I need, ask what you can do, figure it out. Because the way we are living, as Lindsay says, in this white supremacist universe is about domination and violence and extraction. And that's really at the core. I, I, I was pausing there because just take listening to your words, but when you slip into those categorizations that this is a pest, this is zappable, this is somebody that we can ignore or marginalize or or legislate, as you were saying before, legislate away from ourselves. That's a moment where we've entered a place where we are designing a world that is non-inclusive, not even attempting to be harmonious, but is taking our humanity away. And that's the world we're designing in right now. All the more reason why this pause that you're describing is so essential, Sloan Leo. Yeah. We got to take a minute. Shit's gotten real, re- very real in the last few years. I'm wondering if you could, you know, we every week we have this assignment that we do or this sort of meditative exercise. And I'm wondering if you have a thought, and I think you do coming out of this particular episode in our conversation, about what uh, our listeners might do as designers and as humans Um, to reflect on the ideas that we've described and discussed today. Could we, if there could be like um, an actual pause in the podcast where we've decided to take a two minute pause or a five second pause, which might be a long time in the design of a podcast and say like, you know, we're going to take a moment to pause. Don't look at your phone. Don't wander around the kitchen. Don't try to figure something out. Just sit down for a second and don't do anything. And like pay attention to how hard that is and then try it again until we talk again. Thank you, Sloan Leo. Um, I'm really glad we had this conversation together and um, I look forward to the next one. Um, It is, I'm, I'm struck by how this simple uh, topic of convenience has really taken us into some incredible places. Um, And I I thank you for that. And I appreciate the way you hold space. Thanks, Lee. The Futures Archive is a podcast from Design Observer. To keep up with the show, go to tfa.designobserver.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to rate and review us and share it with your friends. And you can make sure you're following me on Instagram at TheRealSloanLeo or sign up for our What the Flox newsletter at floxstudio.com. The Futures Archive is brought to you this season by Automatic. Thanks again to David McNeil, Juliana Morimoto, Spee Kozloff, Paola Antonelli, 
and Lindsay Garcia for talking to the Features Archive. You can find more about them in our show notes at tfa.designobserver.com, along with a full transcription of our show. Our producer is Adina Karp. Owen Agnew edits the show. Thanks, as always, to Design Observer founder Jessica Halfand and to Design Observer executive producer Betsy Bardell.